This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Big changes coming to vaccine distribution. The hopes that this can speed things up. First change from the feds is to call on states to expand the pool of those who are eligible. Everybody 65 and older, those with underlying conditions, will look into whether this will lead to more shots in more arms more quickly. Question, would you get your vaccine at, oh, Disneyland? How about at your favorite baseball or football stadium? Mass vaccination sites at popular locations sound like a great idea. So how is it all going to work? They should load you up on Space Mountain, jab you in the arm, and then send you through. I like that. That's what they should do. (laughs) If you thought 2020 was bad with the pandemic ruining just about everything, a new report predicts 2021 will be full of problems. Oh, terrific. COVID-19 is now driving some gorillas ape. We'll explain later. Let's start with the vaccine distribution. Tinglong Dai is a professor of healthcare analytics, operations management at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. So, Professor, with the tiers, nobody knew where they stood. That was a problem. So what's changing now? Yeah, it's changing. And uh, it's going to run out. It's mostly healthcare workers and nursing home residents. And it's going to move. We're moving on to 65 plus uh, old year people. So I think it's changing very soon. So makes sense to you or not? This seems to be a less complicated avenue, right? Just give it to people of a certain age group instead of having all these different lists to go through? Well, it makes perfect sense to me. I'm saying that because the original CDC plan was to look at the risk and uh, trying to prioritize high-risk people, not just try to roll out as fast as you can, but actually try to target high-risk population. Uh, that was really ideal kind of a solution. The problem is that we do not live in an ideal world. Uh, to actually implement such a, a, pretty, a plan is actually very challenging. And just to, for example, uh, in Maryland, this is where I live, live in, actually, it's difficult for the state to identify healthcare workers who are going to get uh, vaccines. And now it's even harder to identify other essential workers, like grocery store uh, cashiers, teachers. Um, so I say it's a great plan, but it's just difficult to implement. Uh, it's actually far easier to implement this uh, simple age-based strategy. Well, of course, the, re- the reason, as you know, that the government initially went to this tier plan was because of the scarcity of vaccines, right? So they said, well, we only have X amount of vaccines available right now. Let's get it into the arms of people most likely to get ill and who needed the most healthcare workers, that sort of thing. But if we're now going to throw open the doors and everybody, I mean, everybody 65 and older and younger than 65 with certain comorbidities, those are millions and millions and millions of more people. Uh, Even by releasing these so-called second doses, because the vaccines currently available require two. Uh, is there going to be enough product to give all these people now vaccines? That's an excellent question. So right now, the bottleneck is actually not a supply. Right now, the bottleneck is resources needed for vaccinating uh, the people. Uh, we do not have enough healthcare workers to give people shots. We do not have enough space. We do not have enough time slots. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but on the other hand, the current CDC privatization scheme also made, forces hospital to give vaccines to like the IT guy who's 25 years old and who definitely not in the high risk category in any sense. 
And uh, so uh, you're absolutely right by, um, you know, broadening the eligibility. We are talking about 90 million people. Uh, that's a lot of people. And uh, so even if we can vaccinate 1 million people per day, we need uh, like three months and we may not have enough doses. And so in the short term, the bottom uh, bottleneck, we shift to the supply, back to supply again. Uh, but still, I have to say that this is a good plan because you want the bottleneck to be supplied. You don't want bottleneck to be, um, you know, the resources for vaccination. Uh, you, know, you, you know, if your bottleneck is supplied, that just means that we don't have enough doses. We just need to keep producing, but it still is much, much better than wasting variable doses of vaccines. Yeah, but, but does it, in the end, does it really matter to the person trying to get a vaccine? I mean, if somebody, let's say, is 66 or 67 and now is eligible, does it really make a difference if when they try to register, they can't get their appointment because there's nobody to give them the shot or because there is somebody now to give them the shot, but there's no shot to give them? At the end of the day, they still don't get the shot. That's true. That's true. That's why we need um, more orderly uh, a better thought of a plan, rather than saying that your know, door is open to whoever CB5 plus. I actually thought, uh, you know, it makes sense to do age-based privatization, but we should be more careful. We should look at uh, 90 plus, you know, 95 plus, 80 plus. Like, in fact, I actually thought the UK system makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we should also, uh, we should not try to be too overly rigid in enforcing the priority, because if you try to rigid, we have situations that we're going to be wasting doses. And we should try to learn from airlines, right? Like, like when you bought, they have different private groups. And uh, when they call your name, you do not show up. And uh, people, even with lower private status, they should be able to get them. And uh, so, so, the, so the key here is try to be flexible, also try to be really uh, uh, you know, careful about the planning process. Ting Long Dai, professor of uh, healthcare analytics, operations management, uh, Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. You remember airline tears? Remember, uh, well, remember but, American had like nine of them? Yeah. Well, but that's the <laughs> back thing. when I, we flew. I mean, he said he said we should learn from the airlines. I don't know if I should take comfort in that or be scared. Let's learn from the UK. Mass vaccination sites are being set up across the country at fairgrounds and stadiums, even Disneyland will become a vaccination site. How's it going to work, though? Dr. Jeffrey Luther with the California Academy of Family Physicians is a member of the California COVID-19 Advisory Committee for the vaccine. So, Doctor, you think California First Stop is going to follow these new federal guidelines, letting more people get the vaccine quicker, more immediately? That's, that's an excellent question. And you're right, the announcement not just expanded the number of people potentially getting the vaccine sooner, but also... Uh, committed to releasing more doses of the vaccine sooner, uh, which was something President-elect Biden was pushing in his um, comments in recent weeks. And um, California, you're right, doesn't have to uh, deviate from the federal guidelines, but we have to have a pretty good reason not to. As it happens, the, the committee I'm on, the Vaccine Advisory Committee, is the one making it recommendations to the Department of Public Health on how to prioritize vaccine delivery. And it was just announced we have an emergency meeting at four o'clock this afternoon to discuss this very topic. So stay tuned. Okay. So is it your anticipation that California will do what the federal government is recommending? It seems because, like a probably yeah. was in that answer somewhere. Because yeah. it seems like it makes a lot of I sense. An educated guess on my part would be that, yes, it will probably very much resemble what the federal government is saying. Um, the, the, the whole idea of the tiers is that moving between them is fluid. and 
the, the last person in tier 1A doesn't have to get her vaccine before we can go on to tier 1B. There's potential for great overlap, but I think the logistics and just the supply of vaccine has been a big limiting factor so far. Okay, so these super vaccination sites, in practice, what is the plan for what they actually look like? The process for them, who would go, that kind of thing, and how you'd be notified that, it, that it's your time, because that's the big question everybody has. I mean, how do I know when it's my time to drive over to Dodger Stadium? You know, and whether it's Dodger Stadium or it's your doctor's office or it's CVS um, or your pharmacy of choice, that's the question in everyone's mind. There's a tremendous amount of anticipation and anxiety. Uh, the, the big question is when and how will I get my shot? And especially when these guidelines keep changing or evolving, it creates a, a sense of, of unease and chaos. You know, I'm grateful that I don't have to be the one figuring out how to administer uh, a Dodger Stadium-sized vaccine clinic, but some of the general challenges I see in whether it's Dodger Stadium or Disneyland or Petco Park, it's going to, they're by design going to handle huge numbers of people. And that means you're having lots of people come into relative proximity, which is a crowd control and a COVID control issue. Um, so scheduling will, scheduling will be important. People won't be able just to drive there and drop in. Um, and so the county has to have a scheduling system that will give people a time window. Another problem is that once you're vaccinated, our current recommendations are that you be observed for at least 15 minutes to look for any sign of an adverse reaction. And so you need physical space where people can be spaced away from each other uh, with a healthcare professional keeping an eye on them for at least 15 minutes while however many other people get their shots. So it's not just a drive through, get your shot and drive off. Um, there also needs to be a process for evaluating um, who's ready for that vaccine. You know, even if we abandon some of the intricate tiers that I'm not saying we're abandoning, but which may change because of the Fed's announcement today, there's still going to be issues where you know a 78-year-old is you know deserving of the, everyone's deserving of the vaccine, but a 78-year-old is in line for the vaccine, and a healthy 25-year-old is not yet. And obviously, you can tell the difference between a 78-year-old and a 25-year-old, but People, if we adhere to the different tiers, there has to be a method for identifying who's ready and who's not. We're also gonna need lots of staff uh, to vaccinate, to observe, um, and we're looking at anyone who could potentially be a source from nursing students to pharmacists and farm techs to dentists to um, physician's assistant students, et cetera. Okay, but I'm, I'm gonna stop you there, doctor, because all the things that you've just said, which you're absolutely right, and, and I don't have to be an expert to to say, yeah, you're going to need all of that. It also sounds like it's going to take kind of a long time to get all this up and running in an efficient way. Why do I see, I don't know, what's the good word, chaos? I think that's the word I, I used, yes. Okay. So, I mean, how long is it going to take to get all of these requisite things in place, the people, the systems, and yes, I mean, making sure that people drive in their cars and then they stay for 15 minutes while they wait to make sure that they don't have a negative react. That's a lot to, to ask of any facility for thousands of people every day. That's true. And I think that a lot of the infrastructure work I trust has been going on, is going on behind the scenes. It's not something that we see, and I guarantee it, it's probably going to be a rockier rollout than we would like to see, but I think the, um, the resources will be rolling out. I do think they'll be able to get up and started. It won't be at full capacity on day one. I can guarantee that. 
Dr. Jeffrey Luther there, California Academy of Family Physicians, member of the COVID-19 Advisory Committee. Stay tuned. We all thought we just had to get through 2020 and then things would be just fine, but it's looking like we were wrong. It was a trap. 2021 has its own problems, its own risks. Uh, The pandemic, also political unrest, economic problems. So what do we do? KYW's Matt Leon talks to David Livingston, senior analyst at the Eurasia Group, which analyzes this year's potential troubles. The key message, if nothing else, from this year's top risk list, which was unfortunately put on, you know, vibrant and raw display in Washington, D.C., is the fact that the U.S. is on the one hand still the world's most powerful industrial democracy, and yet it's also the most politically divided and economically unequal, and one would argue culturally polarized uh, of all the industrial democracies. Um, We have a difficulty arriving and agreeing even on the, the same set of facts to debate uh, let alone arriving at consensus on on any given set of facts. Um, and so, you know, our, our top risk is 46 asterisk. What that's meant to say is the 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden, will become president in an environment in which he was rightfully legally elected with a significant margin of the popular vote. And yet he will be viewed by a large swath of the country uh, many of those who support, you know, President Trump as an illegitimate president because of the dissemination of misinformation, conspiracy theory, uh, inaccurate uh, articulation of, of facts about the electoral process and, and the electoral outcome. And this will have a knock-on effect that will even taint, you know, some of the, uh, you know, members of Congress um, and, and will create a dynamic in which it is increasingly difficult for the U.S. president, in this case, President-elect Biden, to govern. The second item on the list is what you refer to as, the list refers to as long COVID. And reading this, I'm guessing this is, obviously the pandemic is awful, but the, the concern of the long-term effects, even once, say, everybody's vaccinated, of people that were sick, maybe the strain on the healthcare system, kind of explain what you mean by this. Absolutely. Um, so long COVID is, of course, to, to, to contextualize the, the title of the risk. It's, of course, the, the term of art for those that have lingering symptoms, um, even after they've recovered from catching COVID-19. Now, we've, we view this as, as also uh, very descriptive of what we're going to see in terms of the systemic and structural effects on the global economy and on global politics from COVID-19 and its, and its various side effects. COVID-19 will last with us. Its, its wide-ranging impacts are not going to disappear. We're going to see that in a couple of different ways. Number one, we're going to see a what some economists call a K-shaped recovery within countries. We already have seen that low-income, minority, and oftentimes female communities within countries have been the hardest hit. They've had the highest levels of unemployment. They are overrepresented in terms of their status as frontline workers, um, and they have suffered the most from the economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, not to mention the direct health impacts, of course. We know that the the pandemic has hit certain minority communities the hardest. And of course, service sector workers, it goes without saying, are, are, are harder hit in many of these circumstances, especially frontline service sector workers. There's also going to be a K-shaped recovery among countries. 
This is to say that certain countries, uh, including the United States, um, the EU as a broader economic bloc, not a country, of course, but a, but a broader economic community and set of countries, are more well-equipped, as are many in Northeast Asia, like Japan, to deal with these lingering symptoms of COVID-19, these lingering economic impacts of COVID-19, than are many emerging markets. Why? Well, they have a greater ability to borrow from international markets without having their debt increase in cost significantly as they borrow more to cover different deficits, to provide additional stimulus, to support frontline workers and vulnerable communities, et cetera. They have more creative monetary policy and more capable monetary policy, of course. And they've also put in place already stimulus measures, which are going to be realized in 2021. So the U.S. passed a major stimulus package and is already looking at more stimulus under a Biden administration. There's some talk of the $600 per uh, per individual being increased to $2,000 per individual. Now the Democrats control the Senate. Japan is is increasing its stimulus to counteract its third wave of COVID-19. And of course, the EU had a, a watershed moment with its recovery fund, which will deploy significant sums of fiscal stimulus in the second half of 2021. This contrasts strongly with emerging markets, where the they've already borrowed um, in many cases close up to the to their limits without causing a spike in the in the yield on their debt, um, and there's going to be more scrutiny from international markets and international investors of emerging market countries in 2021. This is going to give them just less space to operate, less space to try and offset some of those negative economic impacts of COVID-19. So we think it's a differentiation story this year, where you're going to see differentiation between developed markets and emerging markets in a way you didn't as much in 2020. Coming up after this short break, COVID goes from man to eight. You know, this virus is contagious when humans can give it to animals. Two gorillas at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park have tested positive for COVID-19. A third gorilla is symptomatic but did not test positive. The zoo says several others may be infected. At least they haven't started talking yet. With us to discuss all this is Amanda Mellon, biological anthropologist and evolutionary ecologist at the University of Calgary. Also Ron McGill, wildlife expert, communications director for the Miami-Dade Zoo. Amanda, let's start with you. Should we be surprised that the gorillas could catch COVID and some have gotten sick? Unfortunately, this is not a surprise. Um, We've uh, done some modeling results based on looking at the gene sequences of the receptor that that the virus binds to in humans and also in a variety of non-human primates, including gorillas, and and found that they, they should be very susceptible. So while this is really sad and concerning news. It's unfortunately not that surprising. I mean, yeah, we share so much of our DNA anyways, right? That maybe you could almost see this coming, but what, what can you do for a gorilla to, to help them through a sickness or through this one? Uh, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because with humans, we can communicate with them that they should wear masks and socially distance. Um, and with non-human primates that are so used to and it's so important to them to be maintaining close social proximity to individuals of their group that's not really an option for them so um, i think as you mentioned this is the first case that we have known um, of a infection and we're just going to have to see how the disease progresses and um, you know what we can do for other um, primates in captivity and also those in the wild is just 
um, be very, very careful and use our own PPE, our protective equipment, and follow our own best guidelines um, for, for staying away from them and keeping them safe. Ron McGill over at the Miami-Dade Zoo. Uh, Dr. Mellon brings up an interesting point. I mean, you know, you can't very well have gorillas wear masks and, and tell them to stay socially distant from their kind. It's been proven hard enough to do that with humans. So, I, I mean, are you surprised and how do you handle this situation? Well, again, like the doctor mentioned, I'm not surprised that they're able to catch it. Um, I'm disappointed that they've been found positive in this particular troop of gorillas. Um, it's the first time, as you've mentioned, a non-human primate's been seen to have it. We've seen it in tigers. We've seen it in minks and some of the mustelids. We've seen it in domestic dogs and cats. Uh, it should be an indicator to us that there are probably more species that have been uh, diagnosed and able to catch this, this virus. So that's something we need to be aware of. Fortunately, we've not known of any animal that has died as a result of the virus. So uh, at worst, what we've seen is what we've seen in one or two of these gorillas where you see some coughing, uh, and it seems to run its course and run through. Um, but having said that, the ball is in our court. As, as keepers of these animals under human care, the ball is in our court to maintain uh, our social distance, to use all of the PPEs that we can, uh, you know, use foot baths, use the, the masks, uh, use PPE equipment, uh, and also understand, like what happened in San Diego, is that just because we think we don't have it, we can have it because it is believed that it was an asymptomatic keeper who may have trans, uh, transmitted this to the, to the gorilla group. Um, having said that, like the doctor said, you don't want to separate these gorillas. A uh, troop social structure is very important to their health, to their psychological health, which is a direct connector to their physical health. So they'll, they'll be closely monitored, and hopefully uh, they you know, display some symptoms that they will get through and, and recover totally from. Does this change anything that you guys are doing, or is it just kind of the same? Like, no matter that there aren't people in the park, you still mask up if you're going to go see the gorillas. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and the keepers, you know, what we've done is we've separated our teams. So we don't have overlapping teams. Only certain teams work with certain animals, and they're A and B teams. God forbid someone gets sick in one team, we have a B team that can fill in. So there's no cross-contamination available. There's a lot of things that have been done. I don't know if it's going to be anything uh, more intensely that can be done. I, said, I just think that this, uh, you know, shines a light on how necessary it is to really abide by all of these things. You do things for so long sometimes that I, I think you may become lackadaisical. Yeah. You start to slip, right? And this wakes you up. Dr. Mellon, uh, is there a danger here because once uh, these viruses mix with other animals, and in this case with the, with the gorilla, is there not the, the risk that the virus will mutate and then jump back from the gorilla to a human, but in a different sort of maybe even more pernicious form? Well, I think what we're seeing around the world is, you know, uh, more and more data that viruses do mutate. Um, we also have seen the virus showing up in a lot of different animals, showing that it is zoonotic, so able to transmit back and forth between humans and animals. Um, I think in any host, it has the potential to mutate and, you know, strains that are more infectious or that bind um, more strongly will become more dominant. But I think that, you know, the, the real message and the real responsibilities that humans have are to keep safe those non-human animals, because by far the greatest risk that's out um, in, in our world is us to them. Ron, do, do gorillas get vaccines for things? Uh, no, they get tested for things like tuberculosis and such, but there's no... Uh vaccination program that we have per se uh, for our gorillas, uh, you know, they, they will be tested. We have annual physicals where they get their blood pressure, their heart exams and tested and they get tuberculosis testing. But they're
specific vaccines that are given to them at this time. Dr. Mellon, back to you. Is there any thinking about giving the now, what, we have two or three in the world certified COVID vaccines, would there be any benefit or, or risk to give some animals the vaccine? Well, I think there's a lot of things to consider, and those decisions have to be made by um, the captive care facility managers. Um, we certainly have evidence that they should be effective um, in non-human primates. Um, uh, some vaccine trials, not just for SARS-CoV-2, but other um, other diseases. You know, those vaccine trials are carried out on rhesus macaques um, and other non-human primates. And so, there, you know, there's good biological reason to believe that vaccines could be effective. But um, you know the the uh, ethics and the um, difficulties of vaccinating wild animals or even animals in captive care facilities, it's complicated. So those are uh, conversations that need to be informed by lots of different parties. Dr. Amanda Mellon, biological anthropologist at the University of Calgary, Ron McGill, wildlife expert at the Miami-Dade Zoo. Sometimes you just have to make do in a bad situation. That's what a bakery in Germany is doing during this pandemic. Scherner's Baking Paradise is now making cakes shaped like syringes. It's to mark the uh, COVID vaccinations and that they are now available. The bakery owner says he was worried syringe-shaped cakes would be too dark, but he says even for anti-vaxxers, it's kind of funny. The bakery did make some COVID-related cakes last year shaped like toilet paper rolls. The owner says the syringe cakes are vaccines without side effects, and you can come back and get another one because they're so good. Obviously, there's no evidence that the cakes will protect you from COVID. But just like the real vaccine, I will have two. But I will not separate them by three weeks. We'll be back to back. And that's uh, the icing on the cake. Uh, the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Find us there.